And now we're visiting the beautiful town of Kenmare in County Kerry. A recently published book tells the story of an independent-minded priest and his efforts to help starving people during the Great Famine. It's called Kenmare, History and Survival, Father John O'Sullivan and the Famine Poor. The author is Dr. Colm Kenny, who joins us now. You're very welcome back to the History Show, Colm. Thank you. The book traces and deconstructs the history of the area from the 1650s onwards, but your main focus is the famine period and the role of the parish priest of Kenmare in helping the towns poor and, and die. There's a there's a kind of a personal connection to Father John O'Sullivan, so maybe you will uh, start with that. Tell us how you first learned about him. My granny was born in Tralee and... Uh, she was related to Father John somewhat distantly, but they had an ancestor. Father John's grandfather was a direct lineal ancestor of my granny. He was a ship's captain in Dingle. He used to take butter to Lisbon until, unfortunately, on what was meant to be his last voyage, he went down with his ship and was never seen again. But she left a letter, a handwritten copy. She'd copied out a long letter that was printed by Father O'Sullivan and circulated to his parishioners during the famine. And she left this when she died and it was among, in a box of papers on top of a wardrobe as family papers tend to be and I'd never paid much attention until a couple of years ago I picked it up and I began to think, what's this about and who is this man? And I began to dig and found the most extraordinary collection of papers Mm. still surviving about him and about the workhouse where the poor were during the famine in Kenmore. very vivid journals, didn't he? Very vivid journals and they're in the diocesan archive in Killarney. Um, They've never been fully published and they're fascinating in all kinds of ways about Ireland at that period. Uh, This was a time, don't forget, when more than two out of every five Irish people was living in a one-room mud cabin. I mean, this is who we are and this is one of the reasons I've always wanted to tell a story about this period, lest we forget just exactly where we come from and what life can be like. Tell us a little bit about O'Sullivan's early life and then his and his training as a priest. He grew up in Tralee himself and uh, he went to school in a, in a school which was attended by Catholics and Protestants. I mean, in those days it was unusual. often... It was unusual, I suppose, it was dying out. I mean, quite a few Irish towns seemed to have had school teachers who ran private schools. This was before, if you like, the nuns and the Christian brothers really got going and we had a proper, if you like, formal educational system. And he grew up there in a family where his father had died when he was young. So, you know, they were not very well off. But early on, he was seen to have some talent. And the local bishop, Cornelius Egan, got him a place in Maynooth. And he did quite well when he went to Maynooth. But there was a great shortage of priests. So although he qualified for a scholarship for further study, Cornelius Egan brought him back to Kerry and sent him out to Dingle as a curate. And interestingly enough, it tells something about Tralee, I think, at that stage. His Irish was terrible. He hardly spoke any, and Cornelius Egan insisted that you know he brush up his Irish before he sent him to Dingle. And he arrived in Dingle just as the cholera epidemic of the 1830s struck. And if we think COVID is bad, I mean, in one day alone, apparently, in Dingle, 200 people died. And between the journals, his journals, and between the minute books of the local workhouse, which are also still extant, fortunately, you were managing, you managed to build a reconstruction of what life would have been like for the poorest in Kenmare, and it would have been utterly miserable. Oh, unbelievably so. I mean, to begin with, people lived on very little in those days in rural areas. I mean, potatoes and milk were 
were the main staple diet and you would have a little bit of fish. Vegetables were not greatly cultivated, oddly enough. I mean, we might think that things like parsnips and carrots and so on were were plentiful, but uh, they weren't grown in a lot of areas and people didn't even know how to grow them. And one of the features of the famine was they began to teach people how to do this. But I dedicate the book, for example, to Catherine Connolly. She was a little girl who was put out with her family, put out of the workhouse because it was hard even to get into the workhouse. There were all kinds of restrictions And she was found as one man, the man who found her said, a little girl, as he thought, asleep on the road. But she and Dan and John and Michael, her brothers, were actually dead just above Kenmare Bay. Or there was Florence Sullivan, who died within a week of being born. Her mother hadn't got enough nourishment to give her milk. They were giving the babies coffee instead of milk in the workhouse, uh, despite the uh, best efforts of a wonderful medical officer called Dr Thomas Taylor, who himself was something of a, an extraordinary individual. And the stories of the, of the people stuffed into rooms, the panic among the children, it's just mind-boggling and people dropping dead in the street. But I didn't want to make this a completely negative, depressing story I set out to try to give a voice, in a sense, to these people who hadn't got a voice, to find ways to tell their story. And one of the great things, as you've mentioned, are the workhouse minutes, which were rescued from an attic, I believe, somewhere. There's volume after volume of them in the Kerry County Archives. And I have to be to say I'm very grateful both to the archivist in Kerry County Library and to the diocesan library for managing to find COVID-friendly ways of allowing me to have access to these records. And I could have written three books out mm. of them. They're so good. They're so full of stories. Now, I mean, we'll talk about O'Sullivan's contact book a little bit later because he had extraordinary contacts or met extraordinary people. But how did he initially respond to the crisis? In an entrepreneurial fashion, he he didn't in the first instance seek charity. He did what he had done when there was a a period of need in Dingle too. He set out simply to find ways to get more food into the area so the price of food generally would be brought down. He seems in his own quiet way to have been quite a businessman. He managed to organise this and a number of the parish priests around Ireland were trying to do this in their own way to help their people. I mean, they were, after all, educated unlike a lot of their flock in those days. And it was an enterprising way just simply to try to do something practical because there were difficulties of getting food even distributed to these areas. So when the potato failed, it wasn't simply a question of people not being able to afford other forms of nutrition. They couldn't get their hands on it. So that was his initial way of responding. But that soon proved totally inadequate to what was happening. He he took himself off to London. Why and what did he do when he got there? Yes, this was a time when it took 25 hours just to get to Dublin by coach and so on from Kenmare. So it was quite extraordinary that he did go to London. Uh, The first time he went, he went with the uh, Church of Ireland clergyman from Kilgarvan, a reverend going. And he did have generally good relationships with the Church of Ireland clergyman, except with proselytizers. Uh, But he managed somehow or other to get himself not just introduced to Sir Charles Trevelyan, the famous Trevelyan of Trevelyan's corn in the song, uh, the most powerful civil servant in London when it came to Ireland and Irish famine relief. But he, he, he entered into a long correspondence with him and visited him a number of times when he went to London and ended up being invited even to stay in Trevelyan's house, which was quite extraordinary for a humble parish priest. 
But as well as that, he managed to get himself into the new British Association for Relief that had been set up by London bankers, many of them Jews, the Rothschilds and so on. And they had set up this charity and were working very hard to get relief to Ireland, but they weren't generally meeting people, letting them come to see them. O'Sullivan got in twice to them. And he worked with uh, a man called Solomons, for example, who became Lord Mayor of London. And he got relief. Uh, Rothschild put a a ship at the disposal of, of famine relief for Ken Mayer in particular. And if you visit the Holy Cross Church that he subsequently had built in Ken Mayer at no cost to the parishioners, it should be said, he managed to do it by getting donations, you'll find the Star of David as a common motif inside it. And local people believe that that is as a mark of gratitude to the Jewish people in London who helped Ken Mayer during the famine. The association with Trevelyan, as you say, is astonishing. But, I mean, presumably he didn't have that much influence on Trevelyan's thinking because, you know, I mean, Trevelyan is still excoriated in Ireland. He's not mentioned in quite the same breath as Oliver Cromwell, but not too far removed. I think Trevelyan gets something of a harsh press, to be honest. He was a civil servant trying to implement policy and policy at that time was very much in favour of an approach of letting things rip and not interfering with the market. And I don't know if Trevelyan personally deserves the kind of excoriation that you mention. Of course, he had a limited influence and at times he was quite frustrated, but he found it very useful to him, the association, even when he got back home because Trevelyan used to send him letters and he used to send him blue books of parliamentary proceedings. And the fact he was getting these even from Trevelyan meant that local officials and so on paid more attention to him. He also managed to get in to see Parliament. He appeared before a parliamentary committee and his evidence there is wonderful to read. Now, he wasn't the only priest who was doing these things. There were other men too who were trying to do the same thing, but he did have a disproportionate amount of contact and access and it had to have counted for something in my view and I do think it, it helped to get relief for Ken Mayer, which was very isolated. Tell me more about his relationship with members of the Protestant clergy because there's a suggestion that perhaps he was the person who coined the term super. Explain what the term super means, first of all, and then the ramifications of it, if you would. Well, there was a movement at that time in the Church of Ireland, particularly to try and convert Catholics, proselytise, I suppose. And it was well intended in many cases. But of course, when Protestants came with relief in the form of free soup and free food and jobs and so on, it appeared to very hard pressed Catholics, perhaps, that they were being bribed and a number of the uh, clergy set out very strongly to stop this happening and they targeted the proselytizers, that section of the Church of Ireland that was engaged in this and the people who were giving out this free soup became known as supers and uh, anybody who had anything to do with them, any Catholics who went over and converted would be isolated and even you know, condemned from the altar and excommunicated even in some cases and he is said to be in folk uh, memory in some parts of Kerry, the man who invented the actual term super. I don't know if that's true, but he certainly took very strong action against supers in Dingle. And then again, also in Kenmare, and the story I don't think has not been told about what happened in Kenmare with a local landlord of Dromore Castle, a man called Dennis Mahoney, and his second or third wife, who, who was a, a Dublin woman called Kate, who became known as Yellow Kate. And it became very bitter indeed and led to clashes and violence to such an extent that the landlord Mahoney himself got badly beaten one Sunday morning 
and uh, died, in fact, a few months later. And people came to think that uh, his death could be attributed to, to this beating. And so O'Sullivan was known as, uh, you know, the, the priest who, who kills the parson in some quarters. And his, his actions were extreme and they worried even the authorities in the church and may have been one of the reasons why he never became Bishop of Kerry, even though the priests of Kerry voted for him to become bishop. Yeah, he did not have a great relationship with authority figures in his own church. No, he didn't. And there were a couple of reasons for this. There were people like Cardinal Cullen and Archbishop MacHale. They were the new hierarchy who were trying to make the Irish church more respectable, more bring it into line with the church across Europe, have less local um, festivities, patterns and so on, put an end to the stations where people used to have the sacraments brought out to them in local country farmhouses. And he belonged to a different generation who liked kind of that kind of church and were worried about the centralising formality of the new church. And when the Bishop of Kerry was too ill to go to the Synod of Thurlis, which was a major reforming synod, as it happens, O'Sullivan was sent in his place and he had an opportunity, much to his disadvantage in the end, to come into contact with Cullen and MacHale and they didn't much care for him. Well, they, uh, didn't, they didn't much care for each other either. No, no, they certainly didn't. That's <laughs> evident from his journal, it has to be said. Um, and, uh, he, I mean, for example, he, he wasn't greatly enamoured of the Immaculate Conception. No, it's extraordinary. This, again, was part of a different Catholic church emerging during the 19th century with dogma and, you know, much more centralised authority. And he had great respect for the figure of the Virgin Mary, but he couldn't figure out, as he said, how he managed to go through Maynooth without ever having heard of this dogma or being forced to believe in the things that the church was now laying down for him to believe. And he didn't take very kindly to it, you know, to be honest. And I include reference to that in a chapter I have on women. Yeah, talk to us a little bit more about that chapter on women. Remarkable things to be learned about attitude towards women at the time in the workhouse records. Yes, in the workhouse records and elsewhere, particularly, for instance, in the workhouse records, the penitential section that was opened, for example, for unmarried mothers who came in are women who had become involved in what might be regarded nowadays as prostitution, I suppose, was probably regarded as that then, but they didn't quite put it that way. And so they created a penitential ward. Women were definitely second class citizens. I mean, even in the law on the relief of poverty, they were essentially the responsibility of their husbands. And if their husbands weren't looking after them, they were in deep trouble in terms of what kind of relief they could even claim. And throughout the history, Ken Mayor, right from the time that uh, Petty came and was granted the area, the great Cromwellian settler, and his wife was such a central part of the management of his estate, and on through the references that are sometimes passed over in relation to the role of women, right up to the role of the nuns in bringing education and helping to develop the lace-making industry, I was determined that there should be this story told because far too often women get left out of history. And in telling it, I was delighted to, uh, to be helped by discovering some sketches of women in Kenmare in a bookshop in Shrewsbury in England by a woman who was visiting in the 19th century. She was the a daughter of a member of the Queen's household. So I acquired these and I published a couple of them in the book, a couple of wonderful sketches of an old woman, for instance, looking over her shoulder as if she's looking back at the famine when she was probably in the, or could have been in the, in the, in the workhouse herself. And another picture of two young women on the road to Kenmare from Killarney, one of them with two little pigs on a leash, which was apparently a sign 
sign of being somewhat better off if you managed to own a pig. You were, it was a sign of wealth, you know. The last time you were on the programme, you spoke to us about your book on Arthur Griffith. And you, you, you're you putting everybody to shame because you have three books out at the moment. The, the Griffith book, a short book called Midnight in London on the Treaty, Treaty Negotiations, and the Ken Mayer book. But um, Griffith one of the plenipotentiaries who negotiated the the treaty. We've been talking about the famine years and he was a man driven by fear that Ireland was dying on its feet because of the decline in population, which obviously began during the famine period, but then continued for many, many decades afterwards. Absolutely stunning figures. I mean, I don't think we're really aware just how quickly and how much the population of Ireland continued to drop right up until 1961. It dropped of the area of the Republic to 2.1 million from something like 6.5 million between the famine and 1961. And even by 1900, the early 1900s, Griffith could see half of the population had left. They were just leaving in droves and the economy had been gravely damaged since the Act of Union. And this drove him. He was driven very much by economics. He grew up in the middle of great poverty in the centre of Dublin and his own family were badly affected. His father was very ill and died and he had to look after his his mother. So, I mean, you say I'm putting people to shame by three books, but these books are books that I see as related. That's a project I've been working on for quite a long time, the research on them to tell stories about Ireland that I think are too easily forgotten about where we came from, about the real driving forces of people like Griffith, who had a fair grasp of economics for which he has been sometimes not recognised, but occasionally has been by people like uh, Paddy Lyons, the great economist of the 20th century, who, who did see that this was a very key factor in his motivation. And sometimes I think when we talk about the treaty and so on, we talk too much about politics in Ireland and we forget the great tragedy of people's families being torn apart by the famine and the effects of the famine and its aftermath on the entire fabric of the country. Well, there's plenty of Colm Kenny reading to be done with those uh, three books published over the span of just a couple of years. And you're definitely putting other historians to shame. The the one that we've primarily been talking about is called Ken Mayer, History and Survival, Father John O'Sullivan and the Famine Poor. It's published by Eastwood Books. Colm, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Sheila Nivuil on sound and our researcher, Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.